Welcome to the Happy Mindset. Today's episode is episode number 74, and today's episode title is called Drama Therapy. So today I'm joined by Alexis Maron. Alexis is a drama therapist. In drama therapy, she combines therapy and counseling with dramatic elements such as role-playing and improvisation. On today's episode, she talks a little bit more about what drama therapy is. She talks about how she has managed to combine her passion for drama and psychology into a career path for herself. She also talks about communication and listening. So she talks about some of the key things to keep in mind in order to become a better communicator. She talks about language, the importance of language and how we talk to ourselves, how that influences what we see. And she talks about her story in general and the difference between emotions and feelings as well as she talks about that. So I learned a lot from talking to Alexis. It's an interesting topic. I'm a big believer that in order to move through things, you have to move through them in an embodied way. So with drama therapy, it's a way of bringing the talk therapy more into the body. So it's taking into account the body. That was my understanding from this anyway. And, and that's something that I, I believe in that in order to move through things, have to move through them on a feeling level as much as on a psychological level and drama therapy seems to be something that that does this so i hope you enjoyed today's episode i hope it gets you thinking about potentially a way that you can start combining your path and yeah thanks again for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode okay so thanks for joining us today alexis thank you so my first question for you is who are you and what are you doing in the world today Ooh, that's such a deep question to start with, the who are you question. Um, well, my name is Alexis Marin, and I reside in Steel Beach, California, and I am a drama therapist. And what that means is um, I have a very specific degree um, or licensure. I'm a registered drama therapist, and I work with people with addictions at treatment centers, um, helping them get through substance abuse and sex and love addictions. And then I also have my own private practice where I'm helping couples with marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling or just couples in general learning how to communicate better. And then I also work with individuals who come in just for the standard stresses of life, work issues or partnership issues or, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, I also work with a group of first responders. So I have officers and fire and people who have been in the military, anybody who would potentially have witnessed a traumatic event. I work with them as well, getting through PTSD and the addictions they may have. And then lastly, I work with adults with Down syndrome, uh, teaching them social skills through drama and things like boundaries and how to read other people's emotions. And all of that is through drama therapy. And drama therapy is a specific type of kinetic therapy, which is using dramatic principles for therapeutic purposes. So basically what that means is anything that you might see in an acting class, um, improv or role play or makeup or using puppets or embodying emotions, all of those are tools and techniques that are available to me as a drama therapist to help people kind of get to the heart of the matter uh, a bit quicker because when you're, anytime you use your body, you're going to be able to connect mind and body a lot quicker than just trying to access what's going on in your brain, which can be quite complicated. Mm. So that is drama therapy. And uh, it is, um, it is becoming more and more popular as we speak, which is great, but it's definitely still trying to get its feet in the United States. Um, and we're trying to get um, insurance companies to recognize it as a viable form of therapy. So we're working on it, but it, just, it takes some time. When did you start seeing the importance of incorporating the body into therapy? 
Um, what about incorporating the body into therapy? Is that the question? Yeah, another way, like in drama therapy, I'm guessing you're trying to embody the mm -hmm. feelings and move through feelings in an embodied way. When did you start realizing that that was an important part of psychology and helping people move through things? Um, actually, I started to realize that um, really at a young age, um, before I was in, even into psychology, I started as an actress. So I started acting at about age five and was in and out of plays and musicals my entire life. And every time I was working on a new character or reading through a script or, you know, starting to really relate to a role that was given to me, I realized how therapeutic and cathartic it was to really start to embody that character, whether that was through dance or through movement or just even changing the way I walked or how would I imagine this character looks when they're feeling sad or anxious or angry. And when you can put those into your body, you realize how quickly everything starts to sort of process for you. Um, even if, you know, if uh, you're just having one of those days where you kind of feel down and, you know, you may have heard the theory that when you're feeling upset, if you force yourself to smile, it actually starts to change the way you feel. So when you work from the body up, there's just so many more cells and there's so much more sense memory to work with that can really remind your brain that you have a lot more control over what's going on than your brain wants you to understand. Your brain wants you to think that you're a victim to everything, when in actuality, your, your body can control your experience. And so coming from the actress standpoint, where all, all our entire job is to embody a character, I understood how that can translate into psychology. And if you make people move around, first of all, it moves the energy and second of all, it forces them to figure out, you know, what is it that my body is giving off? And even just by one particular shift in body language, it really changes the, what you're emoting and what, how people are experiencing you. Mm -hmm. When did the interest in psychology come about for you? The interest in psychology came about um, pretty, actually at a young age as well. I was first introduced um, to my own therapy sessions about the age of eight. And um, I had a wonderful therapist. She was just a, a typical um, psychiatrist talk therapist. So it wasn't drama therapy, but I was introduced to the power of being able to talk to somebody that was not biased. Um, I could just vent or I could cry or I could scream or whatever it was and I wouldn't be judged. And I had such a wonderful experience there. And in fact, my whole family did because uh, one of the reasons why I started to go to therapy is that my Mom was diagnosed with um, dissociative identity disorder, which is the terminology for multiple personality disorder now. And um, so as a family, we were working through that together and trying to figure out what that looked like for us and how to manage that. And when that was introduced into my life, I think that kind of just started this spark of um, I want to be able to help people. And so I went through um, high school as an actress, and then I went through college as an actress. And Finally, it kind of all came together at the end of my college career. I met somebody who was practicing drama therapy. And when he told me about it, both my love of drama and psychology got ignited at the same time. And I realized I've had such a wonderful experience with both. And I already understood the kinetic connection between the two. And then to realize that this was a career or a field that I actually could pursue was very kismet. And it just felt like that's exactly what I should be pursuing. And so um, I applied for NYU and I got accepted there and I got all of my drama therapy training specifically and got my master's in that. And so 
I got all of my psychology and all of my drama love fulfilled right there in that program. Mm-hmm. How about um, were you always self-aware or did that come from like the experience you've had with drama and psychology and therapy? Mm. Ooh, good question. <sighs> Gosh, I think if you say you're self-aware, you, you're admitting that you're not self-aware. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, but I mean, I think all I can say with that is that as a child, you know, you're, you don't know that much about yourself, only what people have reflected to you. So as a child, I mean, yes, people would always say that, you know, the old phrase of um, somebody comes across as an old soul, like I've, I've been on the earth for a while, I'd always been kind of mature. I'm an only child. Um, I really care genuinely about the experiences of other people. And so I think I've always had maybe a bit more of a deeper awareness. Um, and I can see how that comes out in my work for sure. I'm also a Pisces. <laughs> so I'm a very creative and empathetic and sensitive human being just by astrology's sake. Um, but I, I think when I decided that I wanted to become a drama therapist, I also tried to force myself to be better at self-awareness because in order to be the best type of therapist I can, I have to be very connected to what's going on for myself first and take care of myself so that I'm not projecting that onto my clients and that I can show up as the best version of me so that I can do the best for my clients. What is the best version of you and your understanding? What are you reaching for? The best version of me is someone who really does, um, a consistent job of knowing how to regulate herself, meaning that I know that every morning I wake up, I'm still just a human being, just like everybody else, just trying to do, um, do no harm and be kind and considerate to others. And I think in my self-awareness practice, I've really just had to come to terms with what do I need to do for myself to make sure that I can show up as a blank slate for my clients that I don't make my stuff their stuff and I don't make their stuff my stuff. So a lot of it's about sending appropriate boundaries. Um, my, the best version of myself um, has a wonderful self-care practice, takes care of her body, takes care of her health, her mind, partnerships, relationships. Um, and the best version of myself also is still learning and working on how to be able to speak her truth and stand up for that at all costs. Because really, at the end of the day, that's all we have is ourselves and our own truth. And we have to be able to defend that at all costs, I believe. And so that's my continued work, for sure. And so with the, the listening, were you always a good listener, like an active listener? Or did you remember a time where you realized, God, I'm a bad listener, and you started paying more attention to that? <laughs> um, I Actually, I think I've always been a really good listener. Um, I was very quiet as a child. I'm an only child. And so growing up mostly around adults, I think you learn how to become a better listener. Or maybe I was just really fascinated by what the adults were saying. And so the, the content, yeah, so I was just saying, yes, I think I've always been a good listener um, growing up with, an, with adults. It was always fascinating listening to what they had to say. Um, I don't mind speaking, but I actually get much more joy out of listening to what other people have to say and taking in their content. And then when I do speak, I try to make it very succinct and to the point. Mm, that's good. 
So going back to yeah. the drone therapy, what does a session look like? You work with groups and individuals? Mm -hmm. Yes. So what so, would somebody expect yeah. going to a, a drama therapy session? Yeah, good question. I think, um, first of all, for somebody, if I, if I were speaking to somebody and they asked me that question, my first response would be, don't expect and don't go in with any expectations. Uh, because every group and every session can tend to look a little bit different depending upon the activity or the exercise that's being presented. So in group work, typically drama therapy is very activity oriented. So the group leader or I would come in, um, for example, with an exercise, maybe something called um, befriending the addiction, which is an exercise that I do with my clients who are suffering from addiction. So I would go in with that and typically that group would look like some type of warm up and maybe a warm up would be um, to choose three feelings that they've or emotions that they've experienced that week. And instead of telling me what those emotions are, I want them to show me on their body what it looks like. So they would show me what sad looks like, happy looks like and anxious. Right. And maybe the other people in the room would try to guess what those emotions were based off of how they put them on their body. That would just be our, our warm-up to sort of get us in the space. We always do something like that. Um, and then befriending the addiction is an exercise where I'm asking the clients to actually make a character out of their addiction. So they're personifying their addiction. So I would ask them, you know, is your addiction, what gender is it? Is it male, female? Is it androgynous? Is it um, transgender? You know, whatever it is. Um, how old is it? What does it look like? Because I want them to imagine that their addiction is something outside of themselves that they can have a relationship with as opposed to their addiction is inside them and always controlling who they are. So that takes them into something that's called the disidentification process where you can see your ailment outside of yourself and learn how to live in a healthy relationship with it as opposed to a toxic one. So that would happen and everybody would create their characters and then we would sometimes do scenes with those characters or um, create some type of dialogue with them where the person identifying as the addict can talk to their addiction and try to figure out what is it that it needs. So, you know, that could be one thing that we would do um, in a group setting. Um, in my private practice and in individual settings, everything looks a little bit different. I mean, sometimes it can mimic what a talk therapy session looks like, just depending on what's happening for the person. But always the questions that I'm asking are through the lens of a drama therapist. So it focuses on how, what are the roles that you're playing in your life or your relationship? Um, you know, if you could be a different type of person, who would you be and what qualities would you have? So, you know, they're all kind of directed through that lens. Um, but most off, you know, I would probably tell somebody the only thing I would want them to expect is that when they walk out of the session, I would hope that they would feel that something has shifted. Maybe they can't identify it yet, but whether it's just a physical thing or, you know, the energy has shifted for them, that's the intent of each session. Mm, sounds interesting. Yeah. I like the disidentifying with the condition. Like you've got the, you're speaking to the condition rather than the condition being in your body. That's uh, mm -hmm. pretty cool. So what types of people do you generally see? Do you see a lot of creatives, a lot of people who are actually in drama and stuff coming to these sessions or do you often get, you sometimes get people who are very logical in, in, in their head? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, you would, I, I, I've imagined when I first started doing this that it would be 
kind of more creative, kinetic type of people that would be drawn to this. But in actuality, it's, it's not. I do have those people, but most people that come in are kind of that very analytical, logistical, um, a kind of graph-oriented brain. And I think maybe why they're drawn to this is because it takes them out of that, right? It, it forces them into their body. It forces them into their sensory experience. So it gives them a new way to think they, that they can access. Um, and those are the people that sort of seek it out on their own. You know, in the group work that I do, they don't get to choose which groups they do. They have to do everything. So a lot of them are outside of their comfort zone, especially when they think we're going to be acting in every session or doing role play. But when we ease into it and when those people that are very hesitant start to see how it works, it's amazing how quickly people will open up and just allow themselves the opportunity to play because that's a lot of what it is. is it's, it's playing. It's allowing yourself to be creative and explore something that you wouldn't normally if you were just sitting down forcing yourself to think about it so we get all shapes and sizes and all different types of brains um, and I love watching a very logistical analytical person sort of switch over to that other side where they give themselves some freedom to explore in a new way it's fun to watch mm. so like when it comes to to addiction what are some of the biggest obstacles for people overcoming an addiction mm. Gosh, addiction is so tricky. Um, mm. First of all, I think one of the, the first things that people have to address is that we have different models of addressing addiction. So some people believe that addiction is a disease. Um, that's The disease model is something that we are, I think, engaging in more and more over here. So it's a disease just like anything else and that you don't really have a lot of choice in how it is occurring with you. Some people still believe that you, you know, it's a choice and that you should be able to stop at any time. I, th I think chemically, though, the way your body gets addicted to things, it's, it's not so much of a choice. It just is something that's in your body that you have to work with just like anything else. Um, but I would imagine besides that, one of the biggest things that I get in the way is just the person who has the addiction, it's their own limiting belief that now all that they are is an addict. And so they will always be behaving as such. And where I feel and I understand that it's important in the like the 12 step process to be able to say, you know, hi, my name is Alexis and I'm an addict and to be able to own that. I think that's important because you have to realize that it's become something a bit bigger than yourself. I, I see where people will internalize that and sort of give themselves an excuse like, well, I won't be able to reach for my dreams because I'm just an addict. Um, I won't ever be able to have anybody trust me again because, well, I'm just an addict and I, an addict, and I hear that phrase a lot, just an addict. So that's why it's important to do those exercises, like you mentioned, like the disidentification, where you realize this is just a portion of who you are that you struggle with, that you need to fix the relationship. This isn't all of who you are. Um, so we do, you know, we focus a lot on that, that there, as far as many things that have gone wrong in your life are things that have gone right and where are your strong suits and where do you really connect with human beings and what do you have to offer this world? Um, I think we should look at them, people who suffer from addiction, as people who have a lot to offer, which they really do, and we can't look down on them for having something that to some people feels like a choice. Mm. To be honest, I think we, we all have some sort of addictions on some levels. It's just when you're in the addictions, like even being addicted to your phone and stuff is a form of addiction that's priming you to be addicted to things. So um, 
Yeah. I think that recognition then can give you more compassion towards other people when you realize, Becca, I'm actually addicted to certain things as well. So it's like, I wouldn't want to be judged for that in the same way. Uh, uh, like, I want to, it's kind of, it's kind of treat people how you want to be treated yourself. That's, it kind of reinforces that, I think. Yeah. Come, yeah. The golden rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. What were you going to say? It was just, yeah. The golden rule. Just treat others the way you want to be treated. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it. You know, for, for people who don't have an addiction, it can be very hard for them to sympathize or empathize with people that do. And I think like deep down, like you said, you just have to remember, you know, we're, we're humans first. All of us have some type of ailment. And to your point, all of us have some type of addiction in some way, shape or form. Some are very severe and some are mild, but we still have that sort of compulsion. Like you said, you know, wake up in the morning. First thing you do is look at your phone or you go drink your coffee or, you know, at lunchtime you have a soda. All of those are different types of addictive substances. And so we, we all struggle with that in some way. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to communication as well, because you work with people and helping them with their communication, what sort of things do we need to become more aware of to be more effective communicators with people? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in order to be more effective with communication, um, you really first have to acknowledge that everybody is doing the best that they can. I don't think anybody is out there trying to be a horrible communicator. So I think the way people communicate is they are doing their best. And then they also just have to realize, though, that everybody has a slightly different form and style of communication. And so back to that question about, you know, have I always been a good listener? I think actually being a good communicator starts with being a good listener. So if you're a good listener, you can hear your partner say to you, you know, this is really what I need from you. This may not be your natural thing that you do, but this is what I need. And this will help me feel more secure. You have to be able to hear that, acknowledge it, process it, internalize it and be able to say to that person that you heard what they said, and then be willing to move forward with with whatever that action is. So I think when people think of communication, they think of uh, actively speaking, and I would want to encourage everybody to stop thinking about what you're going to say, and start thinking about how you're going to listen to what it is that people are saying to you. And then that will really start changing the way you communicate, because you're not going to be just waiting for your turn to speak which is a lot of what happens inside of communication. We're blanking out when the other person's talking um, mm-hmm. and uh, not really listening and taking in the new information that they're giving us. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> I, can, I, I think that can become habitual too. Like I, I've suffered from that quite a lot, like the um, waiting for the person to end speaking so I can add to it. And some of that will come from my own insecurities of like, oh, fake it if I don't have anything to say here, I look stupid or this, there'll be an awkward pause or something. So... It wasn't really like that I was being disrespectful of the person. Sometimes it was the habit of like, I was insecure myself that what if I didn't have anything to say? Um, but yeah, it's kind of stopping that and being more present and listening to the person and then responding. Mm-hmm. It's like that's proper communication rather than yes, two-person yeah, monologues. Yeah, exactly. Which is, yeah, which very often ends up happening. And that's a good point that you bring up. I think um, with communication, society in general is starting to feel more and more awkward with it because of all of the social media and the technology that we have, um, having actual deep conversations or even just 
shallow conversations are happening less and less verbally and more so via text or email or, you know, instant messaging, all of those different things. And so we, we do lose the art of communicating with our words. And to your point, um, I think we also have a very hard time just being silent. Um, I know, you know, in my sessions, there's oftentimes somebody will say something that's quite poignant and I want to be able to jump on that and, and say something, but I have to just be able to sit in the silence with them because maybe they're still thinking or they're still processing and I don't want to interrupt that for them. So every once in a while, I just have to force myself to sit here and allow them to be the first to speak again. I don't have to fill that silence. Um, if I'm with somebody and I'm trying to impress them and I don't want there to be a silence, you know, I, I try to tell myself um, when they're finished speaking, at least say something that's supportive in what they said. So I could say, you know, that was really interesting what you said. I want to think about that. Mm-hmm. And then I can just sit in silence because that I'm allowing that other person know, like I'm really taking that in. Um, and then they know it's not their turn to speak. <laughs> like, give me a minute to process, you know. Um, but the, to your point, I think people being silent is also almost the scariest thing right now. Like, how do I feel this time? When did you start noticing that? When did you start noticing like the power of the silence and noticing when somebody's still processing something rather than interrupting that process, that trailer thought? You know, I don't think I really started to internalize that and honor that until just about a couple of years ago because I was still in that insecure place too of I have to, in order to sound like I know what I'm talking about, I have to fill all silences. I think it's that fear that we have when we're starting out as a therapist that we have to assert our knowledge or make people believe in us and that I'm not a fraud, that I actually have something to say. But I realized that, you know, you learn, everybody learns so much more about each other when you just let the silence lie and people will people will fill it in with information that's going to tell you more than anything else than even asking a pointed question. Um, and so you, you do learn much more about a person if you just let them speak. <laughs> you don't have to ask a lot of questions. People will tell you much more than you would imagine, which is why a lot of the time when I'm meeting a new client for the first time, I like to ask them if they would like to just tell me about themselves or if they prefer that I ask them pointed questions. Some people really need to be guided, like, what do you want to know? And some people, if I just let off the reins and say, tell me whatever you want, I mean, they come out with some very interesting and intense information about themselves right off the bat, you know? So it's just sitting in silence. Another thing I'm curious about is that, like for me, I would think like black and white thinking, you know, when people go from, they see things in black and white and there's no, no room for nuance. Do you see that quite a lot in, in like helping people or blocking people from making progress in their life, just being stuck in this black or black and white kind of thinking? Oh, yes, 100%. Yeah, very good question. Um, yes, I do. The, the concrete thinking, black and white, is something that is very limiting. In fact, um, that was actually a, a paper that I wrote in college was about learning how to live in the gray and how uncomfortable that is for people. Um, and when you can though when you can allow yourself to see in different shades in between black and white like you said that word nuanced is a very good word to describe that and I think right there in the gray I mentioned before that drama therapy is a lot of play and what I mean by that is that 
you know, as we grow up, our imaginations don't go anywhere. They just get tamped down by a lot of logic and facts and analytical processing and all of that type of stuff. But we have a desire to still be just as creative and just as playful and just as imaginative as we were as kids. And I think that is where the gray space is, is allowing us to play and think outside of the box, sometimes even be considered a bit immature, do something that's not very adult. Um, and I don't think we allow ourselves to live in that space very often because we're afraid of how we're going to be judged by other people when we do that. Um, and also just sometimes it's okay to just say, I don't know. I don't know about something. It's neither black nor white. It's somewhere in the middle. And I don't know what that is yet. And I think we feel very forced to have concrete answers all the time when maybe there isn't a concrete answer ever. And we have to be okay, like I said before, with the silence, with the I don't know, and with the desire to just be playful with something and not make everything so serious all the time. Yeah. And then as well, sometimes two things can be right at the same time. I think as a society, what I'm seeing is a lot of people, a lot of, we struggle with that. It's like you're either, you're either with us or against us, or you're either for this or for that, but there's no like, oh, this is correct and this is correct. How do we actually move forward and like understand how this actually works and like what's the optimal solution here? I don't see a lot of that playing out in society at a larger level now. It kind, of, kind of seems to be like sensationalism and black and white thinking and with us or against us. And I don't think it actually helps to move things forward or have any bit of innovation or any of that kind of, kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yes, I think, yes, everything has become very, um, you know, we have such hyperbolic language to everything. It's everything. It's always, it's never, it's all the different extremes. Um, and that kind of gets pushed into our heads, as you were saying, kind of that sensationalism thing too. And so we start feeling like you have to be full out all the time. Like, you know, wake up in the morning and you have to be a hundred percent in hustle mode 24 hours a day and that there can't be any downtime or there can't be just a moment where you're taking a, a breath or a pause. And there is just a lot of pressure to sort of function at this incredibly high level at all times, which I think ultimately is making people feel incredibly depressed because they just can't sustain it. And so then they relate vacation or downtime or relaxing with being a failure as opposed to just having a balanced life where everybody needs to recharge every once in a while. Mm, yeah. How about feelings and emotions? Like you see a distinction between them. Can you explain the, the distinction between our feelings and our emotions? Yeah. So feelings and emotions are, are tied together very intricately, but um, an emotion is your body's natural physical response to something. So, you know, if somebody were to come up behind you and tap you on the shoulder and you weren't expecting somebody there, your body's emotional response may be, you know, maybe your palms would get sweaty, maybe your stomach would get butterflies in it, maybe your heart would start to raise, uh, maybe your shoulders would start to feel tense. So all of those emotional responses, we then label with a word that's a feeling. So I could either call that um, surprised, I can call that scared, I can call that anxious. Um, those emotional responses all lead up into one different, um, one feeling. Now, usually the feeling that we're going to name that emotional response is dictated by the story that our brain is telling us. So in that same scenario, if somebody were to come to tap you on the shoulder, 
and you were in your own home and you knew that somebody else was in your house with you, you would probably imagine, oh, it's probably my brother or my sister or my mom or my dad. I feel safe. So I'm just surprised as opposed to scared. Now, if you were in a dark parking lot and you thought you were the only person there and you have the same experience where you feel a tap on your shoulder, you have all those same emotional responses, but because you're alone in an unknown environment, instead of feeling surprised, you're probably going to label it as feeling scared. So we have a lot of play in that, in that the story that we tell ourselves dictates how we want to label the emotion with whatever feeling word. And so that's where you can really start to manage your feelings more. You can never manage emotions. Emotions is a natural physical response. So for somebody to say, like, you need to handle your emotions better is that's not a realistic expectation. You can say you need to manage your feelings. You need to manage the stories about your emotional responses. Um, it's just, it just is what it is. Right. And uh, so you can just tell yourself a different story and that will help regulate how you feel. Okay. So it's coming back to the power of language, the power of story. It's a yes. power label. It's a, cause I've heard that before actually. It's like somebody going up on stage, they can, the same energy is either anxiety or excitement, same energy. It's mm-hmm. just how you choose to interact mm-hmm. with it, perception. Yeah, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good example. You know, you uh, that used to happen for me a lot when I was performing. Um, you know, everybody would ask, oh, oh, my gosh, are you nervous? Do you know are your lines? And, and I would always, that was kind of a habit that I have, is I would always try to redirect. I'm not nervous. I'm really excited for the opportunity. I'm excited to perform for my family and friends. I'm excited to learn these lines. I'm excited to, um, you know, change somebody's life through this potential drama that they're going to watch, you know. So I would, I would try to be careful with the semantics of that because, you know, even a bunch of people asking you, are you nervous can make you nervous because you feel like, well, gosh, I guess I should be nervous. Everybody keeps mm. asking me. So you have to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like, you no, know, with children, like um, a child can sometimes fall down, not think anything of it, but then the same child could fall down again and, and somebody could rush over and go like, are you okay? Are you okay? And then they start crying. It's like until they had mm-hmm. that kind of um, trigger or they had that kind of whatever, what you call that, um, yeah, I guess a trigger or whatever it is. They yeah. didn't start crying. They kind of, yeah, that's how powerful how mm-hmm. other people's reactions to us can be on us if we're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you can see that happen a lot with toddlers. Even if somebody um, doesn't come rushing to them, it's interesting. You can watch them fall down and then look around to see if anybody saw it, <laughs> to see if they're going to make a big deal out of it or not, right? Like, ooh, did mom see that? Should I <laughs> should I feed into this or should I just get up, right? So it's even then we're starting, even then at that age, we're starting to go through the process of the stories that we tell ourselves, right? So if that little kid fell down and did actually scrape their knee, and so there was some type of pain involved, that's the emotional response is that physical pain, right? And kind of getting sweaty and whatever, they can either say the story that they're probably telling themselves is, do I want to continue to play or do I want to get comforted and go home? Right. And maybe they don't know that hundred percent on that level, but there's something in them going, Ooh, I scraped my knee, but I don't care. I still want to play in the playground. I better not cry. If I cry, I'm going to have to go home or I'm done playing. I need mom's hug. I'm going to cry. Right. So Mm -hmm. we're already doing it at that moment. So with language, like when did you become aware of the importance of, of, of the language there? Because you've been talking about it there a little bit. 
the language you use? Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, I think I came, I think I've always had an awareness of that, but I think it came more into focus actually um, when I started to read more and more plays in college. I went to UCLA and I got my BA in musical theater and you know, we had to take classes on Shakespeare and we had to read in it a lot of different plays by a lot of different playwrights and a lot of different stories and authors. And it it was fascinating to read all of that dialogue and to understand how you could be saying one phrase written out in a variety of different ways and how that would elicit different responses. And more than that, beyond just the actual words that were used or the language, that the tone in which that language is delivered also really changes the way somebody responds to that, right? So you can say, I love you to someone, and you can say, I love you, really meaning I love you. You can say, I love you with sadness. You can say it with anger. You can say it with sarcasm. Um, you know, same three words, but the tone in which it's delivered really changes the way somebody receives it. But with the language portion, you know, like we talked about changing nervous to excited, um, or even saying something like, if you have a group of people that have been waiting for you um, and you're running late, um, when you walk into the room, as opposed to saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm late, you can say, thank you for waiting for me. And that just changes the tone of what happened. If you come in with an apology on your lips, even if you do feel sorry, it kind of puts you in this position of I'm feeling a bit subservient, I have to make it up. If you say thank you, it empowers everybody in the room for acknowledging that they waited for you. Um, And that just really can change the rest of your day and just that little shift of language. Mm -hmm. Very subtle too, like a huge power difference or energy difference there. Yes. Cool. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, Great talking today, Alexis. I learned a lot about um, psychology and drama therapy. Well, I want to know, um, do you have any final message for somebody listening into this, for uh, a key takeaway that you want them to take away today? Yeah, um, I think uh, a couple of different things. Um, you know, somebody is, is listening and is thinking about getting into a field where they potentially might want to help other people, either as a therapist or a drama therapist. Um, we are definitely in a place in our world where we need more and more and more helpers. We need more healers. So if that is something that you're feeling drawn to, I would highly encourage you to look into that. Um, specifically, if you're wanting to look into drama therapy, there are a lot of resources out there online. The National Association of Drama Therapy is the organization that handles all of the licensure, and there's a lot of great information on that website. So you can look that up. That's easy enough to find um, there's the Drama Therapy Institute in Los Angeles, which is also a great resource. Um, you can look me up. I have my own website. It's just my, my name. It's alexismarin.com. Um, I have information there. And then just uh, beyond that, individually, I would just highly encourage everybody to sort of take the pressure off of themselves. Take their foot off the accelerator for a moment, not not to not stay motivated, not to stay goal oriented, but just to get really clear with why you're doing what you're doing. Is it for you? Get really clear and silent and um, focused on your own truth and always let that be your guide. Don't let anybody else dictate to you what should be important to you. 
Good stuff. That's a good message. Great. Thanks. Thank uh, thanks again, Alexis, for taking your time out today and talking to us about drama therapy, the difference between emotions and feelings, language, self-awareness, your own story as well of how you got into drama therapy. It was um, great to hear that. So thanks again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Cool. So until next time, have fun and enjoy the process.